0: You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio.
1: Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Welcome,
0: welcome to another episode of Buildings on Air first Saturdays of the month from 2 to 4 here on Lumpen Radio. It's the show where we talk about architecture, frequently politics as well, um, and would you believe it? It's episode 16, which means that we've recorded 30 hours of talking about architecture and politics and, um, you know, I, th- I think we can uh, do a couple more and I think these couple more are going to be some of the best yet. Um, here's a breakdown of the show for you, what to expect. Uh, first up, we'll be talking about the Thompson Center and uh, the plan to so, <laughs> sell it and what might happen, what's the future of the building, what's the meaning of the building, how do we like the building. Um, If you live in Chicago, which if you're listening to this FM broadcast, you most certainly do, uh, chances are you've been to the DMV in the basement of the Thompson Center (laughs) and experienced that wonderful atrium. Um, So we'll be talking about that building and all of its complexity um, with Jonathan Solomon and Elizabeth Blasius um, here in the studio in a few minutes. Then um, we'll talk with Thomas. Tyler Taylor and James Hurd, two members of the Architecture Lobby, um, about the hashtag NotOurWall campaign that the Architecture Lobby um, has been working for uh, a few months now. Well, actually almost a year. Um, We've talked about it on the show before, and uh, it'll be really nice to get an update. I know those guys have been up to a lot of uh, fantastic things. And then after that, uh, around 3.15 or so, um, it's the mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about architecture with uh, regulars and Louis, and Craig Reschke, a future firm, Um, and maybe a special guest? I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, We'll see who who stumbles into our studio. Anyway, um, to the matter at hand, uh, Jonathan, Elizabeth, welcome. How are you?
2: Swell.
3: Fantastic. I'm terrific, Eva. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm super happy you guys could be here. Um, maybe just by way of an introduction, uh, tell us who you are. Elizabeth, you can start. <laughs> um, who is Elizabeth Blasius? <laughs> Elizabeth Blasius. Is... Blasius. Oh, is that, yeah. oh, that's okay. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky last name. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm an architectural historian, sort of a uh, hired gun. I kind of do National Environmental Protection Act work, um, federal law compliance. I do architectural surveys and then just sort of traditional historic building research.
0: Gotcha. And John, who, who is Jonathan Solomon? <laughs>
3: I'm an architect here in um, in Chicago, and uh, I direct the Department of Architecture, Interior Architecture, and Designed Objects at the School of the Art Institute of
0: Chicago. Yes, yes. which which also makes you my my boss, at least in that, <laughs> in, that in that circumstance. Oh, only three days a week. Yes, only three days a week, um, but you know uh, we won't let that uh, keep us from any of the hard hitting uh, journalistic integrity of buildings.
4: <laughs> Certainly not.
0: Not that I think it will be an issue. Um, <laughs> Because we're all, we're all kind of on the same page here. A little bit about the Thompson Center, I think, because there was this uh, sort of uh, panel discussion uh, called Starship Chicago that was paired with a, a film screening um, in conjunction with the Chicago Architecture Biennial. That must have been, what, like a month ago? Mm -hmm. So, Um, And it was a really interesting discussion about the kind of state of the building and whether this was something is something that's worth saving. So I'm I'm hoping one of you can maybe just uh, for listeners who are trying to maybe place it in their brain, uh, describe the building, uh, where it is, what it is, what makes it special. And uh, also kind of the situation right now that makes its preservation something worth talking about.
2: It is the weirdest building in the loop <laughs> definitely and the most outstanding one too. It's red, white and blue and its shape really catches you from yeah. any angle.
0: Or like salmon teal and off white. Salmon teal and off white, <laughs> which is which is a
2: comment to the patriotism and sort of the uh, the ideas of open government that the architect was trying to convey based on mm-hmm. the colors, based on the shapes, based on sort of this this exploded and then put back together all the, the exterior elements, the interior elements, the, yeah. the atrium.
0: Yeah, and it's got that wild sort of um, uh, plaza in the front. Um, and it's, yeah, the giant semicircular like, curving facade is, It
2: looks like it's from space. It does. It doesn't look like it's from the Chicago school. It doesn't look like it's from Chicago, America, anywhere. No. It just looks like it's been plopped down from... Yeah.
0: Especially, that, and it's like, it's only like a quarter of a circle, sort of, so it's like a, maybe a quarter of a spaceship. It's different. actually <laughs> a very hard shape
3: to describe, yeah, isn't it? it Even is. using techniques of architectural drawing. Right. It's a complicated shape to, to explain. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a building that a lot of people, um, a- a- actually, regardless of how, how it looks, it's a building that a lot of people pass through and use yeah. uh, because it's the home of lots of um, re- retail government services like the DMV. Like you noted, it has a uh, uh, CTA station, the CTA Blue Line, yeah. and the... Uh, the elevated trains on the on the loop are integrated into the building, yeah. uh, and it, it has. Uh, you, you noted a big open atrium that allows you to cut through the block between uh, LaSalle and uh, and Clark yeah. uh, on a you know on a very cold or very hot day. Yeah, so a lot of people find themselves in it.
0: Yes, yeah, um, and and it's it's on the kind of chopping block. Maybe that's a, a dramatic way to put it, uh, but the state has uh, considered. Selling it, um, and so, well, yeah, I, 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 guess I don't know the full story there either, except for that Bruce Rauner has uh, uh, our um, not so esteemed governor, uh, uh, if I may say, uh, <laughs> uh, has has uh, 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 considered selling it to to fix our, our supposed budget crisis in the state. It's been five seconds since you critiqued the, the governor
4: and no one has come in <laughs> to shut down the show. I so I, I, think, I think we're
0: safe. We can, we're, we we're, we're, uh, yeah. we're federally regulated here. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it's been looming in the, um, the the sort of threatened category since 2008, 2009. And, yeah. it, and I think 2015 was really, 16 was when The Governor Rauner really started talking about the the building as a potential item up for sale, that it it was sort of a dump. So, you know, that's when the conversation, I think, started to really kick into high gear. And people in historic preservation, heritage conservation, really started to take a look at the building and take a look at how we can talk about its future.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because – it, it, it is it is a little bit of a dump, right? <laughs> I mean, like affectionately so. I mean, and, and I think, uh, you know, this is part of the reason why I think it's maybe so important to have sort of um, uh, uh, thoughtful individuals, professional individuals with expertise like yourselves to, to open up a dialogue about it because – the things that are wrong with the building are the lack of uh, what they call, you know, three. It's three hundred million dollars of deferred maintenance, so mm-hmm. the state says. Um, and so, like, what are the problem? Like, what are the problems with the building, like actually, that um, uh, couldn't be repaired, right? I, and I'm not really sure what the answer is. I don't know if any of us are sh- totally sure what the answer is. But um, um, there's a big difference between uh, this building is a dump and it needs some TLC, and this building is a dump and we should, you know, sell it and tear it down. So I, I, I think this is one of the things that makes the case so interesting. Hmm.
3: There are there are there are plenty of instances where there are buildings with deferred maintenance or that need a lot of work in order to be to be brought back to uh, um, uh, sort of perceived state of historical correctness or perfection. Sure. Right. In the case of the of the Thompson Center. The building was actually deeply faulted from the beginning, and so to talk about uh, to talk about bringing it back to a to a state at which it could be preserved is a little more complicated, and and fr- and frankly a little more interesting. I think it's what right. makes the building so special. Um, the the, it exists for me I should say um and I, one of the, my favorite moments on this panel was s- sitting with the other panelists all saying what a- what age we were when the building <laughs> opened and um, w- whether we were even around when the building opened and um, it, it certainly exists for me in a kind of a in a kind of a perfect state as I encountered it as a you know as a, as a young person and I I um, I I actually have I have a, a personal connection to the building. Do we have oh, two, yeah. two to three minutes? It's a long segment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can I lean into it? Please. So, um, I, Kiefer, I turn 40 next week. Um, I, yeah. 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 We have yeah.
0: very close birthdays. Oh. I t- well, I turn, let's... Yeah, we should talk no, about that n- later.
3: Off, <laughs> off the air. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm an Aquarius. I turn 40 next week. I was born in 1978 in... Um, in 1984, when I was six, um, my parents divorced, and my mother, who had not, um, she, had held, she had had a job, her, her only previous job had been working for Encyclopedia Britannica here in, in Chicago, yeah. went out to, to, get, to get a job, to go to work. And she got a job working for the state of Illinois um, in a, a teen pregnancy prevention program uh, uh. called Parents Too Soon and her so was fir- it spelled with a two? No, no, this was the this was the 80s they hadn't it, we, it wasn't quite hip enough yet. Um, so her first and her first role in this job was to pack up the old offices which were on Wabash Ave somewhere and get ready to move into the then state of Illinois center which was about to open. Yeah. This is the building that would become the James R Thompson Center named after the governor that uh, commissioned it. And you know, I of course remember encountering the building then as a seven year old and the scale of its interior, the immersiveness of its um, environment uh, the um, the uh, but but I think beyond that, the role that the building played mm-hmm. in Um, both the the sort of local Chicago media, but also just a dinner table conversation. This is a building where um, temperatures in that south-facing atrium reached upwards of 110 degrees in summer. Um, It's a building which introduced the open office plan, by and large, to the Chicago office pool. So the fact that there were no doors on any offices, (laughs) (laughs) right, was a a sort of a novel thing. Um, There there were a Range of of kind of early systematic malfunctions, um, which which again for me, the, the idea that a building could actually be um, n- not just in some way imperfect, but actually maybe nefarious, like maybe evil. Like <laughs> yeah. a really a kind of like glistening like a supervillain. Something really that was like high-tech, futuristic. Yeah. Um, hear from space, but also, like, with some intentions that weren't altogether good. Right. Was was really very powerful. (laughs) And I I think if you go back through what was being said about the building in the press, both about how it looked, but also about what it cost, about the politics of its, uh, you know, of its its commissioning, about, uh, you know, its functioning and its malfunctioning, um, that really entered the public consciousness about, about the building um, broadly, yeah. and so to to now be talking about um and, and to now be talking about its preservation in the context of repair, uh, sort of returning it to some to some sort of stable um intended state, um I, I just find to be really fascinating. How yeah. might we talk about preserving actually, um the the
0: the supervillain right. that resides within that building is an interesting question. It is a super interesting question. Yeah. And I, it makes me think about in, instead of uh you know this notion of agonism as opposed to antagonism right it's it's kind of was a buzzword in architecture theory a couple of years ago but you know agonism is the the idea that you can only sort of define yourself in relation to a, an other right and that like there was some some level of struggle that was actually uh, viewed as like that could be a, a good thing and a kind of like opportunity for growth like in in, in a non-hokey way but like a sort of philosophical societal way right <laughs> and it seems like the, the the Thompson Center, in its capacity as a supervillain, is almost the perfect agonistic other, um, um, which you know defines your relationship to government and all of these other <laughs> things, right? Yeah, and so yeah, and, and as as a preservationist, uh, uh, Elizabeth, how how did you kind of catch wind of all of this, and what has your involvement been in sort of um, um, thinking through uh, some of the some of these issues and um, in, in confronting them?
2: Well, I personally, I I love the building. I think it's there's something that harkens back to the, the Born in the USA era. That sort of like the questioning of you know what what are we what are we doing in in government? What are we doing in, in terms of our projections as? Americans and patriotism and that so that that really that that sort of speaks to me mm. as someone that that loves architecture I always make the joke that I don't really like anything except for <laughs> architecture and that, that's that's pretty true but aside from that it, it's really important to me to in any sort of advocacy issue with old buildings you people should be the number one Concern, Mm. not, you know, that this any sort of pretty ornamentation. It's just how people how do people use the buildings? How do people how do people associate with them? How do they feel about buildings? And not, you know, people like you and I and Jonathan, people like that use the Thompson Center. Mm. So I did I have gone out a couple of times with a uh, with a sign with an old school sort of picket sign that um, is evocative of a sign that Richard Nickel, our our city's most famous historic preservationist in the 1960s and 1970s so using kind of some of that language on the sign on one side of the sign for people that are sort of internal Mm -hmm. and know about the architecture know about preservation and then on the other side i just had a very very simple statement about the state of illinois willfully neglecting the thompson center so to kind of have both of those talking points for people that, that – to find people to kind of connect to what I was sort of walking up and down around the outside of the yeah. Thompson Center to, to kind of get them to kind of talk to me about how they felt about the building. And yeah. the feedback that I received from people was that they're very concerned about the accessibility of the the CTA, sort of that that being sort of like a, a major point right where all the train lines sort of – intersect. We can get from the, the blue line to the orange line. You know, there's the, the DMV, the yeah. Secretary of State office, which is very convenient. I mean, some people just like the Taco Bell. So it's just really interesting <laughs> to kind of hear how people feel about the building. A lot of people really like the architecture, but they they sort of premised their statements about how much they like the building with, well, I know this isn't popular. You know, this, <laughs> I know that this isn't, you know, the, this building is very controversial. My opinion is very controversial. Yeah. Um, that's
0: interesting. Yeah. yeah,
2: absolutely. People can't just outright say that they like the building. They have to <laughs> sort of, you know, step back first and say, yeah. "Well, I know this isn't a popular opinion, yeah. but." Um, Look,
0: that's interesting. It's, I mean, it's a very totalizing building, right? Yeah. In, in a kind of. Um, um, I think that there was a quote. You, you, you. Jonathan has written a piece in the Avery Review about the Thompson Center, and I remember. Uh, I, I could probably dig it up, but there was a quote about how this was a kind of uh, architecture on uh, on on amphetamines or something <laughs> like this. It was. It's totalizing. It's in your face, and you kind of, when you're in the building, you really feel that like the the the, the building is dominating. Your entire experience and it's kind of hard to find a a, a, an appropriate set of words to describe it but Mm -hmm. but it is except for totalizing Mm -hmm. (laughs) which which uh, you know I think is why people feel like uh, any opinion they have on it might be controversial or something it's a in in that way it's like uh, because it's kind of Overbearing or overbearing is like too harsh of a word, but but you can't ignore it. So to have an opinion on it is uh, is 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 almost by nature controversial (laughs) or feels wrong. Well, it's pretty garish. I mean, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not uh, um,
3: it doesn't fit in. Um, and it's it's certainly not uh, it, your sensibilities
0: are not midwestern. No, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, and and Helmut Jahn as an architect is kind of an interesting character in that regard because he's he's sort of one of Chicago's uh, own uh, adopted sons of of having practice here for having practice here for for decades. But um, um, you know he he's 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 not from Chicago, right? He's he's from. Germany? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I wonder I wonder what impact that has also. You know, um,
3: uh, again, a lot of the criticism of the building um, and even uh, some conversation of the building today, um, I, I feel focuses a little bit too much maybe on its fl- flamboyancy, mm. um, you know, and Helmut uh, Jahn, its architect, um, Helmet Jan is a flamboyant dresser and the building itself is flamboyantly dressed. Um you know the colors are unusual, the yeah. surfaces are more reflective than the surfaces we are used to seeing on other buildings. All of this is um I think part of it's certainly part of the building's aura and in in talking about its preservation, I think all of that is Kind of core to the story that has to be told over it, but I'm I'm much more drawn to the kind of embeddedness that Elizabeth was referring to of the building, in, um, in the city's uh, uh, physical infrastructure. Mm. Um, it is embedded in the life of the street. It is embedded three dimensionally mm. in its um, transit system. Um, it is, um, it is a a, a a. In fact, one of one of the things that is complicating the. Governor's desire to see the building sold is that it combines both public and it's a it's a public building in which there are private leases, mm. um, and m- multiple stories of private leases, yeah. and that cr- makes it complicated for the government for the, for the governor to extricate the state from the building itself. Sure. Um, the, the but but it speaks to a larger kind of embeddedness of government into life that I think is also part of the story of the nineteen eighties mm-hmm. and of changing attitudes towards um towards government by Americans in that time and towards their own citizenship. Yeah. And the the kind of conscious drawing together of the architectural space of Government and the architectural space, for example, of the shopping mall mm-hmm. um, in that building is, I think, part of that that story as well. I think it's an important interior story. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and it, it does seem it's it's kind of a building that ties up all of these contradictions, right? It's it's sort of it's it's public, but also you can see how it's kind of uh, you know botched o- opening is is a kind, was was an easy um, easy kind of. Uh, thing to point at for sort of Re- Reagan types who, th- who only can be- believe the government is only capable of incompetence right like and uh, uh, you know it's a, it's a shopping mall but it's also this kind of parable of like patriotism and maybe those two things aren't so different in, mm-hmm. in <laughs> this moment in history but then it is still like a public space and I've been to many protests in that plaza so it is like the the real deal even at the same time that it has this kind of strength so so, it does it does strike me in its complexity to really sort of poetically sum up um, 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 a kind of political moment, and 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 uh, it does make it a preservation challenge. But but I think uh, yeah I don't I don't know, and I'm, I'm curious, Elizabeth, where where you sort of land on these questions?
2: Oh boy, that yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking yeah. about patriotism and, <laughs> and the Thompson Center because it really it really does feel like it's got. It, it it's evocative of that yeah. for me and it's not just the colors it's it's sort of the the design it's the fact that that's you go into the building on any given day and there's someone protesting something oh. and that's fantastic to have that sort of space in downtown chicago to go ahead and do that mm-hmm. That that just, I feel like that the the use the the look of the building, the actual right. structure of the building, it, it, it's sort of evocative of that.
0: Yeah, and, and and the transparency, right? I mean, it's it's sort of yeah. It's like the German Reichstag is like sort of one of these parables of like government transparency. But when you go to the Thompson Center, it's 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 more it's interesting because it's more of the image of sort of transparency, perhaps, than the genuine artifact. But you can sort of see everything. I, I don't know. I, I believe you've written about this, Jonathan. I, yeah. No, I've, I've, you're, you're seeing me
3: become, like, physically agitated. Yeah. Whenever yeah. people talk about, like, glass re- representing transparency of yeah. government. Sorry, I have a mild physical reaction. <laughs> um, He's the, the he right, Audience. The, in the case of the Thompson Center, um, the... the uh, you know the the first of all, as as speaking architect to architect, sure. um, glass itself has a variety of materialities, including. Literal transparency, but also including reflection or um, right. uh, sort of other forms of being a material that actually do, are not conducive <laughs> of seeing through. Sure. And the Thompson Center, I think, illustrates that terrifically. If, if, if in no other way, for, if in no other way than in simply being very dirty. Yeah. Um, in other <laughs> words, having not been washed recently, and 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 therefore very hard to see through. Um, no, I also think that patriotism is kind of core to understanding the building, um, as, is, um, as is, as is as I suggested before, sort of changing, uh, changing ways of imagining citizenship uh, in America. I think that if you, and, and it's imperfection at its moment, it's imperfection at its opening in 1985 in terms of its building systems, in terms of its integration of the public and the private, I think, is another reason why it's such an important building for us to hold on to. um, Because if anything, government has become more pervasive, more invisible, less perceptible, more distributed throughout our daily lives Mm. and throughout our interactions and our media and our urbanism uh, since that time. And certainly, you could draw a parallel between that increasingly sort of smooth and imperceptible uh, uh mm,
0: M- managerialism, y- yeah,
3: sure. Yeah. and the um, development of increasingly sophisticated technologies for building environment management mm. so um the 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 helmet yawn that rolled the the then state of Illinois building now Thompson S- Center, uh, you know uh, open in nineteen eighty five went on to lead a career. Um, developing and implementing technologies for managing the environments of buildings at an incredible level of precision and efficiency, such Mm -hmm. that um, you walk into the atrium of a contemporary helmet yawn skyscraper or airport or or any number of other architects and you don't even notice the building responding to to changes in outdoor temperature or sunlight accumulation and opening louvers or turning on active air handling systems in order to keep you comfortable it yeah. just happens uh, in the Thompson Center it didn't just happen just right at first it needed some tinkering and that that is kind of moment, that moment of not quite working right, I think is an important one for us to remember, lest, mm. lest we forget yeah. that those systems are even there. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, well, and also I'm a nerd for building systems, <laughs> um, as, as we often and we as why, a long time <laughs> listener to buildings on air, I'm I shocked to hear that. Deeper. Yeah, it is. You like buildings too? Uh, uh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> but I I always thought that it was really remarkable how the air conditioning works in this building. It doesn't make any sense because like it's it's a it's it's the most sort of ancient way. Of cooling a building, right? It, they it, they they literally make giant blocks of ice that are the size of a semi truck, several of them every night, and then they blow fans over it, which is like l- literally how the first air conditioning systems worked. It was a kind of like amazing high tech, like uh, 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 sort of instance of this really old low-tech way of, of doing things that that um, you know is, is, is' kind of remarkable because certainly most even large buildings aren't aren't cooled like that um, so uh, yeah I, I think I think uh, it is important to sort of think about th- that weirdness um, because yeah. yeah so like I would draw maybe a <laughs> distinction between yeah. that those kind of moments
3: where the building didn't quite work and things like um, the you know the, the granite falling off being, being uh, granite uh, uh, several years ago a granite mm-hmm. uh, uh, f- piece of granite facing fell off the facade and it rather than rep- repair the granite they stripped the entire sure. facade of the um uh, uh uh sort of series of, of um columns along the the first story of the building yeah um or the the and carpet and what
2: did Lindbecker that- Lin called them stripper poles <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, and the the carpet that hasn't been repaired in 20 years right i mean now those are some symbolic of something else, right? They're symbolic of these years of deferred yeah. maintenance and neglect on the part of the state. And and one might even talk about ways of preserving that evidence of neglect because the building's neglect is part of its story.
5: Yeah.
3: Um so I I I think it opens up so many important and timely yeah. questions about preservation itself, yeah. um, that we might apply more broadly and right. ask why is it when we talk about preserving a building yeah. that we talk about um that we talk about uh preserving a building in a um a, 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 at a, at a particular fixed moment or or in a moment of sure. perfection or of returning a building yeah. to a state that is perceived of as being more correct or 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 more valuable right. than where we might find it today
2: yeah so we could preserve it in in this trapped in amber sort of Ideal state in 1985, and then have historic interpreters coming in with, you know, big leggings and you know, headbands and big boom boxes. That sounds like a party I would
3: like to attend. I, I, would, I would like yeah. that. That is a protest I would join. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. It reminds me of being a student in, in Crown Hall at IIT and working in a historic building, which was always a peculiar experience because you'd be doing kind of the work of an architecture student in in an architecture schoolhouse, right? And 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 uh, uh you know tour guides would come through with the speakers and you felt like a fish in a fishbowl and it was always really off-putting and i was like hey, this this is still like a place and mm-hmm. i and i'm and i'm ha- haven't slept in 3 days and need to finish my drawings <laughs> like please turn your speaker phone off <laughs> but but yeah and i i think it also it, this is not the only building of this kind of vintage that is kind of facing some of these dilemmas yeah. i think that there's, there's something to be said a, a, of, of a kind of debate about preserving postmodernism and postmodernist architecture, and, and how we relate to that. Um, so I don't I don't know. Maybe Elizabeth, you can you can tell us about some of those those challenges and opportunities in thinking um, about post postmodernity and preservation.
2: Well, it's not an easy sell especially to the preservation status quo that tends to like Frank Lloyd Wright and Daniel Burnham and Louis Sullivan. It doesn't really have the same sort of bells and whistles, the Mm. same sort of ornamentation that those types of buildings have. So I think that that kind of, that makes it difficult. There's the this is this is fairly limiting in historic preservation, heritage mm. conservation. But th- there's this idea that a building doesn't become historic until it's 50. So, you know, in, in in my regulatory work and in a lot of the in the National National Register of of historic places and a lot of sort of local designations, a building has to reach 50 years before mm. somebody kind of even, even considers it to be historic. Yeah. And now we're kind of we're looking at a building that's, you know, less than 40 years old. Yeah. And we're we're sort of now having to make the case for preserving it. And in the um, you no, know, I I do I do like to think about the parallels between the Thompson Center and other buildings in Chicago that that were threatened and and the timeline that occurred the, yeah. the time that occurred between the buildings being built and the buildings being threatened. Mm. You know, that the Garrick Theater. Downtown Chicago, Richard Nickel advocated for the um, for saving the Garrick, the Garrick Theater. It didn't happen, but it sort of started the, the, the inertia of historic preservation in right. Chicago really started people getting, thinking about how to save some very important downtown buildings that were being threatened. That was built in 1892, threatened in 1960. The Chicago Cultural Center, you know, our, our very famous, you know, it's got the Louis Comfort Tiffany Dome. It's got the Helian Milay Dome, the um, Grand Army of the Republic Hall, Preston Bradley Hall. It's sort of, sort of this this building with like an incredible amount of aesthetic movement stuff on the inside. It's a very important building that yeah. tells the story of Chicago. It's it was a former library. Now it's it's the cultural center. It's a very successful yeah. building as the cultural center. Yeah. You know, people know it more. As that, then the public library that was built in 1897 threatened in 1965. Yeah. So we're looking at, at sort of a shorter timeline yeah. for the Thompson Center, and I think that kind of it, it's difficult for people. A lot of people remember the 1980s and the system's not working. They remember the idea of Governor Thompson as, as sort of this, you know, Governor Thompson and. Um, Hameyan, the architect, is sort of these big egos that were building this this monument to to <laughs> yeah. egos, and a lot of that people still remember that. Right. And in my sort of walking around with my picket sign, you know, there were people that sort of I felt like I was kind of being attacked by that sort of yeah that idea that well you know the, this is this these this building is just it's just a monument to people who were were jerks
0: sure. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, I I think I think it's really interesting cuz you know there's the there's the the movement kind of about the AT&T building, the Philip Johnson AT&T building in New York and and all all these other things and I I forget who it was it might have been Owen Hatherley on Twitter like a month ago who's kind of noting some of the problems with this with this with the postmodern preservation issue versus kind of uh, m- Talking about preserving modernity because there's two almost different sets of values that mm-hmm. are attached to those. Modernity being something that's uh, sort of decidedly public, mm-hmm. whether it's working or not. And, and, um, uh, uh, most postmodern buildings sort of embody the logic of the time, which is like, uh, you know, one of uh, sort of intense privatization um, um, and, and free marketism. And and the Thompson Center is unique, as we talked about, because it's kind of both at the same time. Um, but but it, it makes me I just th- had a thought that, you know, the kind of rethinking how how we uh, tell stories about uh, and and. Conceive of preservation, to to tell that story. However, we relate to it—positive, negative, or otherwise—is um, um, is really central to to the mission. <laughs> more more so than we like this value and we don't like mm-hmm. this value, right? Like being able to promote a discourse about those things um, and, and sort of um, conceive of them as a shared story—good, um, um, bad, and ugly—is is, is is key. Right. <laughs> right. No. I. I. Um.
3: I mean, there was a moment on our on our panel last month. I mean, first of all, I, I have to say, Elizabeth, I'm um, I'm I it, relieved to hear that buildings don't become historic until they're 50 years old because the same is actually true for people. Um, until we we turn 50, we are also not considered historic. So well, no one is
2: re- no one is going to take me seriously until you know I, I grow a, a beard and my hair goes gray. So, the, <laughs>
0: producer <laughs> Jamie's the only serious person in this room.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but
3: with that out of the way, there was a moment on our panel where we were talking a little bit about the proper strategy for um you know for engaging the Chicago community yeah. around this um, this building that maybe is not like classically easy to rally around, even for a city and a community that has an unusually high level of regard for its built heritage, sure. um, which is a thing I think I should say, that in Chicago you can get people to come off the street, really, to um, not just to hear about, but really to like advocate for and to fight for uh, architecture, right. which is um, unusual in an American yeah. city and valuable. But even in a community like this, I think it is hard to get people to rally around this building for a variety of reasons. But I think that... Um, and you, you were saying, Elizabeth, about, about how there was a kind of a memory in place of the the politics of its creation. And there may be a kind of a, a sense within that 35-year that, um, window of the building's existence that it was actually our responsibility to make it work and we couldn't. And that that's mm-hmm. kind of different than coming to a building that, like— Failed a generation or two ago, right. right? In its current form, and 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 you can look at it differently than looking at a thing that very quite quite literally, because it is a, a public building, it's a state building, is ours, yeah. right? Um, the the, but that might also be the kind of key to a strategy for its for its preservation, which is to engage people in the kind of simple acts of interfacing with it sure. that they value um, anew. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that's the Taco Bell or the DMV, <laughs> I, right. I find that DMV to be terrific. I it's have to really, you, it, it is, <laughs> it's,
0: it's, <yeah. laughs> it's, it is, it is remarkable. I have to say, yeah, you know, and I, I one, one last thing from the panel, we have, we've got a, a few minutes left. I think that, you know, there, there is still the kind of, even if, even if we have uh, that ethic about preserving the building, um, there is still the kind of big matzo ball of, you know, 300, 300 million dollars in deferred maintenance and, and money that has to be spent to, to, to carry out that work. And I thought it was very fascinating on the panel, um, you know, the a Republican state senator um, who is basically uh, putting forward that like. You know, the state has had to make hard choices between mental health and you know putting some maintenance in on the building, and we chose mental health clinics. And I'm like, well, last time I checked, all of the mental health clinics were closed. First, of all. <laughs> but 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 second of all, like, what a what a ridiculous false dichotomy. We could also be taxing the rich. We could be doing any number of things. Uh, you know, even even besides that, but but it's you know I I think to put. To put a kind of our 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 shared cultural heritage and values and discussions about those and a, a one of a, a very f- few genuinely sort of public buildings that we have in in, in this city or any city, like uh, on on the chopping block and, and making it this putting it in this false binary is 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 absolutely out- outrageous. Um, but yeah i don't know i uh, that's that's that was i was i was really taken aback by that kind of like s- stark uh putting in terms mental health or this building um and i i and i think as as sort of Preservationists and architects, like we, we're in a unique position to be able to communicate the value of of those kinds of places, um, which which I guess is a good segue into the last question. So, Elizabeth, you've been kind of picketing and raising awareness and all of these other things, but like, what what are the kind of next steps um, beyond sort of maybe per- perhaps getting in touch with representatives to to talk about um, um, the the building and, and and why it shouldn't be sold or. Or the bids need to be considered carefully and mm-hmm. and not um, and and written such that they demolition is not part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah? What 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 can we expect? Um, um, how might folks um, um, think about getting involved?
2: Oh boy, um, there are. There are a lot of historic preservation organizations that are that are on the the forefront of taking a look at postmodernism and and looking at heritage differently. Landmarks, Illinois is doing you know a lot of advocacy work. They're doing a lot of things behind the scenes, both with um the the state government, but then also with you know potential um, potential just new new options for no. the building. you know if if you look at, Every every old building has problems. Every old building at one point was considered a dump by somebody. Hmm. So if you take a look at you know what happened with the Hotel Burnham, how the, the Reliance Building that sort of had a halo effect on North State Street, the hmm. North Loop. So the thinking about that, thinking about that happening in 1999, 2000, it, it's it's very easy to kind of. Jump from that to the Chicago Athletic Association, which was again threatened—threatened mm. threatened with demolition, threatened with facadism—and then a someone came in and did just a really just fabulous job restoring every yeah. single interior space in a way that is retaining the character of the building, but then is also sort of able to generate income.
4: Yeah, yeah, for
2: the property. So with the, those two sort of—and I'm not saying that that the the ultimate. The, the the end saving the thompson center means it it's a hotel or it's a, a, a whatever it could be or but, a, a casino i guess or know, a casino <laughs> or a casino that that'd be yeah. that'd be interesting Hold on. Um, it, I, I think with we're we're evolving in sure. terms of how we what we do with old buildings what adaptive reuse is mm. and I, I feel like the Thompson Center could be a culmination of everything that we've done before, but then also sort of everything that we kind of want for the future.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, that is, is as good of a place as any to uh, to wrap up. Uh, Jonathan, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on Buildings on Air. Um, I'm, I, I'm I'm chuffed to bits, as they say. <laughs> thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back uh, after a brief break to talk about hashtag not our wall. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um if, if uh, you're only a listener to the podcast version of the show, I, I highly recommend uh, listening live on Lumpin uh, because you uh, are missing – producer Jamie's excellent music picks that are always topical. Um, um, there's uh, just music from the Thompson Twins. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you, know, you can play guess, guess That Theme when you listen live here on Lumpin' Radio. And uh, now uh, we're joined by Tyler Taylor in the studio and James Hurd, who's beaming in um, via, via the phone lines from Los Angeles. Um, t- uh, James, are you there? Yeah, I am. Thank you for... Hello. Uh, welcome. We can we can hear you as if by magic. Um, <laughs> Tyler, how are you? I see I am you. I'm good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Hi, James. <laughs> hey, Tyler. Yeah, so uh, you guys are both members of the Architecture Lobby, uh, as am I, um, and um, you, you guys especially have been... Uh, it, Really involved in the "Not Our Wall" campaign. So, uh, for those of you who who don't know, um, you know, we talk about the architectural lobby a lot on the show. But the architectural lobby is, is in essence a kind of labor advocacy group for architects um, that promotes kind of equity uh, within the profession, um, so we can better serve sort of equity outside of the profession. Um, and 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 "Not Our Wall" is really a, a campaign about kind of Im- immigration um, and and. Trump's border wall and uh in, in all of its kind of instances physical and non-physical um um and and so yeah tell tell us a little bit about yourself um how you got involved in the project um and kind of w- what it is
6: <laughs> Yeah well um you know Dexter uh another member of the architecture lobby was was the guy who started this um, you know, when the border wall was first announced. And that, that started up in the Bay Area, I believe. And when he moved down to Los Angeles uh, last year, um, the L.A. chapter started getting more involved with the Not Our Wall stuff, which, you know, geographically makes a lot of sense since we're, the at the moment, the closest chapter. And, uh, yeah, so I got involved, um, you know, starting with uh, planning our visit to the, the border itself and uh, helping organize that.
4: Yeah. Tyler?
7: I, yeah. And I'm, I'm based in Chicago now, but I actually, I've, I've been interested in this because I grew up mostly in San Diego and um, uh, issues surrounding the border and uh, the physical border fence that already exists between San Diego and Tijuana is just like a part of day-to-day life there. There, um, there are so many people that work on one side. and live on the other and um and the a lot of people don't really realize but san diego and tijuana are really they're one metropolitan area and Mm -hmm. you can if you look at a map or google earth you can really understand that and then the border the international border goes right through the middle
0: right right yeah which is kind of like reminiscent of 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 walls that uh, throughout history that are incredibly shocking and um and, and bad, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and I think the, the we've we've talked about not our wall on the show here before. Um, you know, I, the the lobby had organized a kind of walkout and a pledge for architecture and engineering offices um, um, to not work on the wall uh, and, and this kind of thing. Um, and and also writing responses to the kind of to the AIA and and working with some of our well intentioned colleagues who are trying to design better walls, but uh, and, and Trying to help them understand that, that there is no better wall, right? So I, I'm curious if you guys maybe can talk about that, and then we before we kind of update about where the project's going. Um, this idea of, of, of a better wall and uh, and and how bone this <laughs> I don't know.
6: Yeah, I, I think that um, you know the lobby's position is interesting. You know, it comes from a, a position of of labor. So if you're proposing a better wall i mean one you're still proposing a wall and two you're using your labor to create that wall which uh i don't know there's a level of uh, absurdity in that um yeah. I, I think the difficult thing with this is that as a large infrastructure project uh as a profession we're not poised we're not in a position to deny our lay i mean architects were invited to bid on this but it's uh all all general contractors that actually sure. took up the the call so We're in sort of an odd position where we are professionally somewhat responsible for this monstrosity, but we can't really stop it from happening, at least at a professional level.
0: Right. Yeah, and you're and you're sort of referring to the the idea um, that's like kind of a f- fundament of of many uh, uh, much left thinking about um, how, how withholding one's labor power or as a one's co- collective labor power really not just an individual's labor power but withholding labor power collectively is, is a is a good way to make things happen <laughs> uh, or right, not happen. Exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, and and that really speaks to kind of the architect's diminished role in in society. I think, you know, we our, our license is is supposed to be there to um, guarantee a commitment to the public health, safety, and welfare. And I think there's a, a solid argument to be made that a, a project like this is is detrimental to the public's health, safety, and welfare. Um, but you know, it, it it opens up all kinds of interesting questions about. Like, who is the public, which public, um, right? I, you know, I, th- I think um, uh, the America First crowd has has a very particular definition of, of which public, um, but, but we can also consider it in, in broader terms, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's part of the other reason, this is something we talk about on the show all the time, why uh, architects are kind of continuously being circumvented in development processes um, regardless of, of what what they are because we have just by nature of being licensed a commitment to the public. Um, and, and that's something that a lot of developers, um, including our developer president, really like don't don't want and are not interested in.
6: Yeah, I mean, to a degree, even the most well-intentioned architects stand in the way of profit for developers.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
7: And I would add that, I mean, in the field of architecture, uh, a lot of people are very well-intentioned, and that's why they get into it. They want to make an impact on the world. They want to they, yeah. they make uh, an environment that is uh, a safe and uh, beautiful and just place to live but they see their agency as through the, the work they do or they, right. they see the limits. They, the, the best way for me to affect positive change is by Embodying that in the buildings I design, right, right. Um, But and they like the idea of being active towards those goals outside of
0: their profession, like doesn't even really occur. Right, right. And you you almost have to be active as a citizen, and you can apply your expertise, which I think has been kind of what uh what the project team of of has been up to. So um, what 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 have you what have you guys been up to? (laughs) What's been going on for the last. I understand a trip was made uh, to go see the 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 border wall prototypes that have been built in San Diego
6: yeah so that was a uh, a joint trip between uh, the San Francisco Bay Area chapter and the Los Angeles chapter I think it was last October now um, and you know in a lot of ways um, I always pitch it as sort of the least that architects can do. You know, we're all talking about (laughs) this, and we live right next door, and, you know, there are a lot of issues with, um, you know, I guess being tourists around that area where we're going to see this monstrosity, and it was sort of unclear what we were doing, but we all felt we're talking about this, We, we really have to go see this. And uh, so we met up with some uh, some activists in San Diego, and we were able to see it from both the uh, U.S. side and the Mexican side.
4: Mm.
6: And you know, the fascinating thing is that from the U.S. side, there's this whole security theater, and you we had to bring a uh, uh, a telescope to actually see the walls, and even then, they're just hazy little dots. I mean. Mm you can't get close to these things at all. Then, you know, you cross the border and the whole thing, 30 minutes, you drive around and uh, see it from Tijuana and, you know, you're hanging over the old border wall and you could throw a rock and hit the prototypes right (laughs) up next to them.
4: Yeah, wow.
6: Yeah, it's, it's bizarre that they invested as much as they did in protecting the US side and creating this enormous perimeter when it's almost a, a, as if they're ignoring the fact that there's a, a nation next door that is you know right, right up against the construction site right
0: which is which is precisely the point I guess in in, in a really yeah. kind of sick way uh, yeah mm-hmm. and, and 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 so so uh, what was what was was there any kind of conclusion drawn from that like what did what did it kind of feel like to see these kind of physical instances of of uh, uh, something that that's kind of so pernicious and, and, and awful <laughs> and and really symbolic of of a, a lot of other policies and things like that 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 aren't physical
6: it, it, it was uh, i think mostly confusing i mean you have the whole the, the weird discrepancy between security on both sides of the wall and then you have these prototypes, that when you see them, it's just there's an immediate realization that there's no way that these can actually get built. They're just not a yeah. a functional thing, and that even if they were built, they wouldn't achieve their goal. And I think now we're seeing in, uh, in the news that really they're just a, um, you know, it's a... Uh, they're more of a, a fundraising uh, initiative to just get more hmm. money for border security for ICE and all of the money that would go towards building the walls. Yeah, maybe they build a small strip for a photo op, but really it's going to just go into a continued militarization of the of the border. But regarding uh, conclusion, uh, I, I think that we're really pushing for... Uh, not having a conclusion on this. I mean, this is an ongoing thing, mm. and uh, there are no conclusions that can be drawn, yet we, we view our participation in this as, uh, you know, we're working with other organizations, and we're just contributing to a larger body of work and a larger discourse that, uh, you know, hopefully the conclusion will be the eradication of the border, but uh, yeah. we don't want to come up <laughs> with a conclusion before then,
0: prematurely. sure. For sure.
7: Um, I don't know I I think it's really interesting just how uh, the, the the wall itself the physical barrier and the the barrier that already exists and the barrier that's being proposed and and that these companies are competing for the contract for um, it's, it's it's very symbolic and it's basically just it's an entry point mm. to the to the larger issue of the border um like, really, no matter which way you look at it politically, it's it it's an entry point in terms of fundraising mm. uh, for for border security, and it's also an entry point into talking about the larger how you know the 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 humanitarian, environmental, economic costs right. of that that border right. infrastructure because there's the the wall as as ridiculous and expensive it would it it would be if it was built is not actually even. Yeah. It, it wouldn't even be close to the primary piece of, of the, the, the larger security apparatus along, right. the, along the southern border. yeah um, but it would be the most visible. Sure. Most of what it, it's personnel, it's drones flying <laughs> at 30,000 feet. It's aerostat zeppelins a lot of people don't know that we actually have blimps with uh, sensor arrays. Wow. Um, <laughs> there are sensors throughout the desert. Um, where there is no physical barrier, yeah, and the wall would just be, a, uh, kind of a statement
0: that all of that is there, right. Uh, so station ID time you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio um so yeah so i think i think it is really interesting to think about it as a symbol and you know i, th- I maybe that's part of the kind of initial critique we were we were making of, our, of 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 some of our architecture friends who were proposing better walls is that you know th- th- it's not about having a, a better symbol these things are symbol enough right no, whether whether you think it's a symbol of something really great the militarization of the border, or something yeah. that has a kind of immense, you know, human toll, be, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and is a source of great misery for people, right? Uh, uh, humans, <laughs> you know. I and so so I, I it is interesting to think about it as a, as a kind of a, a symbol that we can we can use to our advantage uh, uh, as people who might stand against it to think about uh, uh, better ways, not just to do a better wall but better ways to reconceptualize uh, 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 borders in the first place and, um, you know, work towards them as, as citizens, right? Um, and, and I know that the lobby is, is sort of uh, uh, working with other organizations on this, as, as you kind of mentioned briefly, James, um, um, about figuring out the ways in which the money on, spent on border militarization could be spent on uh, – uh, uh, on better things, right? Better things, not just m- a different kind of militarization or a different kind of border security or anything like this, but um, schools and, and more efficient crossings that were safer for everyone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can, can you speak to that a little bit?
6: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I think first just re- revisiting the, the architects who are, Proposing better border wall, I think that there is a distinction between, uh, or a distinction to be made. There are some architects, thinking specifically of Ronald Rael, who are, who their work is to ameliorate um, the effect of the wall in border communities. And uh-huh. I think that there is something to be said for people who are working to uh, immediately alleviate at least the, the oppressive nature of the wall for mm-hmm. those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that that is a helpful thing to be doing. However, I'm skeptical of uh, architects, like architects based in New York um, (laughs) or (laughs) architects based in Los Angeles who are not part of those communities who are proposing uh, satirical border walls that are still border walls that are completely disconnected from those communities. It it just seems uh, like a a strange place to put your effort, Um, but... Yeah, I know that as the lobby at large, we had spoken about uh, doing uh, a, sort of a continuation of the Nutterwall project to envision uh, a redirection of these funds. Um, to, if th- this money was poured into these small communities, not necessarily small, uh, these communities along the, the border, you know, what could be built you know, uh, with public services and mind, could look at uh public housing, um, you know, better education, like you mentioned. Um, you know, it's a, it's a large amount of money and it could go a long way to uh helping those communities out,
0: right? Yeah, it seems like that's that's a more appropriate place for the kind of architectural imaginary to <laughs> to land, right? Uh, yeah, and and and, and you know, it's the kind of thing that can be used as a kind of as a, as a as a tool for, for activists, and I think that's that's one of the most exciting things about about the kind of architecture lobby's contribution here is that really, you know, if, if it's being kind of reactive against the current proposal or sort of proactive in the ways that you've just described, um, it's really about kind of using our architectural expertise um, in in the service of uh, a kind of. People who are who who are fighting this fight, um, you know, day, day in and day out, um, um, in a kind of m- more m- and have a more uh, deep and sort of personal uh, relation relation to the thing. I mean, ma- many of us do as well in the architectural lobby, but um, you know, I think I think that's a that's a, a, an interesting and different way to think about one's architectural expertise, um, um, as as you were kind of mentioning earlier, Tyler. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I think we we did some back of the and Patrick Patrick uh, in in the San Francisco chapter did some back of the envelope math to just show like this proposal is totally ridiculous. Right. Like you can't for the money that's being requested. These these things can't can actually be built um, in in the way that they're being described. Um, And and that's uh, kind of on, on one level can exist as a kind of like, gotcha, but that's not really helpful in the end, right? Um, uh, you can't just point out the kind of contradictions and hypocrisies and, and win, um, but it does seem like it's a kind of useful tool um, um, for people who are doing sort of lobbying work or activism um, to, to kind of be equipped with that information. Um, and we might be in a unique place as architects um, to kind of help, help, help figure that out.
6: Yeah, I think that the question we should be asking is if uh, if that money is ostensibly being spent to um, enrich those communities through militarization, which is uh, yeah. obviously not what the actual effect of militarization of those communities will sure. be. If we're willing to earmark all of this money for that, why aren't we willing to do it for what will actually help the community? I mean, uh, why are we so unwilling to invest and directly helping these communities, um, yeah. why does this money have to go to uh, further punishing them? Yeah.
7: Well, it, it's also interesting because even on the U.S. side of the border, uh, the, the, the border communities on the U.S. side are also um, affected very negatively. And they have originally, when the first set of barriers was going up, it was a. Uh, a lot of ranchers in in Arizona and Texas and and small towns that that were joining with Mexican communities to oppose it. Hmm. Yeah, um, it's not it's not even it, it's it's framed as as a kind of defending the homeland us versus them thing, but it's framed by people who are far removed from from the situation on sure. the ground. Yeah.
0: Well and, and uh, speaking of the ground, um, I, I know Tyler, you, you you think very deeply about about these environmental issues and impacts, which is also kind of something that that uh, we're in a position to, to, to draw some attention to and, and yeah
7: and and it's actually um, there's there were a lot of unforeseen environmental consequences of the existing border fence and it's not even you know it's it's permeable water can pass through it. Mm. Um, but it, it, it does things like uh, block the migratory routes of, of um, wildlife, um, even butterflies that don't fly very high off the ground. Mm. Um, but uh, I actually, as part of this project, had the opportunity to, to interview um, a, a kind of combination biologist, ecologist, sociologist who did uh, a survey. He, he actually... Walked and drove 122 miles of the border in Arizona mm. um, to get a better idea of what the real cost was, and his kind of his eventual conclusion was that the wall itself was not going to be the problem. It was the the the, the humanitarian issues um, mm. and the the massive uh, industrialization and urbanization along the border. Um, both as a kind of broader result of, of NAFTA and as a result of the border creating these choke points, mm-hmm. oh, I see. Yeah, um, and that's that's like really the the, the because the the secure all of these um, whether it's the wall itself or all of the other um, built things associated with the security infrastructure, they're able to wave. Uh, the um, existing law or environmental protection laws. Right. In some cases, they've waived dozens of these laws that would normally take uh, sometimes years of of survey work and analysis. Longer than a presidential term. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh But so they've kind of used it to be able to shoehorn this other stuff into that area.
0: Yeah interesting well so we've got like a minute left and so very briefly uh, uh, James maybe you can you can tell us uh, what to expect from the not her wall project moving forward um, I, I understand that very very soon there will be a kind of a, 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 a book of some kind uh, I've seen I've seen the proofs uh, it looks really yeah. interesting and, and thought-provoking
6: um, yeah we're hoping to have that out March 1st um, Cool. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure that the, the architecture lobby will be posting on Twitter how to get a copy of that if anyone is interested.
0: Yeah. And, uh, um, and, and, I, and I assume that that's not, that's not where the work will end. Not at all. No.
6: Um, May 15th um, at Spur in San Francisco, there will be a, uh, a panel event, a symposium about the, the border wall and uh, the Not Our Wall campaign. That uh, the lobby will also be taking to um, Venice this year for the Biennale.
0: Fantastic! All right, well, uh, that's a good spot to wrap up this segment. Um, Tyler James, thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, in just a few minutes, we'll be back with the mailbag where we answer your questions. Welcome, welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host Kiefer Dunn, and I'm in the studio uh, with Anne Louie, Craig Rashke of Future Firm. for the mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about architecture and buildings um, as we do every month. And Craig, how's it going? Great, thanks. It's good to be back. I missed last month. Yeah, yeah. We we, we had some some ringers. Yeah, some strange uh, surrogates. Another
8: architecture <laughs> architecture couple. I'm <laughs> sure they were much worse than
4: us, right? They were.
8: They were much much worse. They were <laughs> just <laughs> so terrible. You however, could never
9: swap us out for anyone else ever again.
8: Well, however, they're my neighbors,
9: so oh. I, I can't
4: uh, I can't
8: uh,
0: rip on
9: them too oh, hard. It was oh, it was Nick and Emily, right? Yeah. It was yeah. Nick and Emily, Our yeah. dogs play at the park together. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah, there's a density of of architecture couples in Bridgeport. <laughs> So, do
5: Anna and I need to worry about getting fired in the
0: coming weeks? I I don't think so. I don't (laughs) think so. But, you know, it's good to keep you guys on your toes. Mm Anyway, yeah, so, so you know, you, you weren't here to answer the questions last month, um, but uh, as is a kind of tradition, uh, the question of air conditioning and <laughs> air conditioning units <laughs> <laughs> came up, as it does seem to come up every month. And the question was, um, I, I think it was actually from friend of the show, Skylar Moran, uh, who asked if you could reverse a window unit, a window air conditioner unit and use it as a heater um, and we concluded that yes probably, but it would be really inefficient but um, um, a listener wrote into the show, uh, uh, Ryland Auburn, um, and he he said that uh, he did some experimentation in his apartment <laughs> and he can confirm that our assumptions were correct um, and yeah, so it works as a heater uh, if you flip it around and you're you're able to control the condensation. So I didn't have to make Hannah get up on that ladder? And <laughs> no. Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh. yeah, so, so be, be like Ryland because uh, he he wrote into the show and he also asked a couple questions. Wait,
9: can we talk about that for 30 more seconds yes, since abs- we were not able please. to talk about it last week? Nobody brought up the Michael Rakowitz project.
0: I What? <laughs>
9: Artist Michael Rakowitz, who teaches at Northwestern and also recently had a so- big solo show at the MCA, mm. did this project, I think, like early on. Very early on, I, I hope nobody here is listening who's going to tell me I'm getting this wrong. Maybe while he was at MIT or when he just graduated, that um, attached inflatables to the outside of um, air conditioning units or or HVAC um, outputs, um, and those kind of inflatable units became places for homeless people oh, sure. yeah, potentially yeah, to perfect. sleep. But yeah. they were also warm. They were kind of like thermite, and I think they were performative as well as. Um, as well as uh, uh, kind of like activists, right? So they both kind of rendered visible the kind of like waste and negative externalities of HVAC, but they also kind of like pointed to the plight of um, homeless people in the city Mm -hmm. during the winter. So that project could have proved to you already (laughs) that it worked, right? Without anybody needing to, you know, like, I don't know, drag out their air conditioner in their basement in the middle of the winter. that
5: project happened in the winter.
9: Yes. Right. So it was, so it like was warm heat in from the buildings. Yes. Oh,
0: so you're, it wouldn't actually do anything because it would be the buildings would have to have their air conditioning turned on in the winter, which they wouldn't for that project to really. Well, I guess it depends
5: on the building. Mm, Many
9: depends buildings on what do kind of HVAC system, system, right? Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Window units certainly not. They were not window.
9: Okay. Okay. They were not window <laughs> units. They were not window units. They were you know like uh, you know bigger buildings on their HVAC outputs. Okay. But, but it's so the same theory applies. But Craig is about to say something about mini-splits. I can see it coming from a mile <laughs> away. This,
5: is, this has been on my mind because we uh, are trying – we specified mini-splits for uh, – Craig, what is a mini-split? <laughs> a mini-split is a kind of heat pump uh, that Craig, what's heat, a heat pump? Can, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting that, there. That, that like can heat and cool a space uh, without using um, – without using a gas furnace Mm -hmm. like is kind of typical in Chicago. And our mechanical engineer has been very eager for us to start using these on some smaller projects because uh, the the kind of smallest standard furnace is about 40,000 BTUs, and many small Chicago apartments only need about 20,000. So Mm -hmm. you're oversizing. If you put in the smallest furnace, it is still like vastly oversized. Um, And the our client was asking us how heat pumps work and he said, in a furnace there is a flame and that makes heat, how does a heat pump work? And the <laughs> best uh, kind of uh, explanation I could give him was like, oh, it's just like an air conditioner running in reverse, which the engineer and the Mitsubishi sales rep thought was like a good way of explaining it. So yeah. I think they it, it is conceptually the same thing as turning your window unit around. It is just designed to operate Efficiently at those kind of low temperatures. Yeah. yeah, Craig
9: is such an evangelist about these units that our client asked him if we had some sort of alternative agenda about specifying <laughs> these. Which I think, I, I think Craig thinks he was wondering if he thought we were like um like I don't stockholders, know. <laughs> stockholders like we were getting some kind of commission or like maybe if we were like uh like lead I don't know lead crazies
4: you know right We <laughs> just we just a very green evangelist mechanical
5: engineer that is uh, very. Um, very excited about, like, new and better ways to do things. Right,
2: right. Yeah.
0: There we go. Well,
4: that is...
5: Inter- so, air conditioners in reverse. Minute, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
4: More efficient. More And efficient. better sized. Yeah. Of yeah. course, yeah.
8: they go along with uh, instant on hot water heaters, right? They're usually yeah. specified in that, that same kind of thing, which is yeah. actually and a pretty you save, cool thing.
9: And yeah. you save money because, well,
5: <laughs> now we're going to do this. <laughs> I did recently try to specify an instant hot water heater, and those things use, like, a crazy amount of electricity. Yes, they
8: do. I was actually... Just going to mention that because when I had to have my mains hooked up at this new porch that that you've had a part in, and (laughs) I I actually couldn't do it because you have to get a bigger um, service line and you also have to have a bigger gas line, Mm. which I didn't realize Mm. people's gas actually comes out and puts a super meter on the front of your house. And Mm. they call it a super meter and they kind of roll their eyes and they say, ooh, big gas user. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what you want to see from a people's gas representative. Yeah.
0: Well, should we ask Ryland's question? I think he gets first dibs yes. since he, he wrote us this very nice email. Um, so is, is cage match Mies van der Rohe versus Walter Gropius, two famous titans of modern architecture. Uh, who wins? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I, <laughs> <laughs> didn't I am trying one to of them <laughs> have tuberculosis. <laughs> I Actually, I don't know. It I was, thought Wally well, Gropius had tuberculosis. Uh, quite possible. Well, yeah, that would certainly put him He's at a f- physical disadvantage.
4: It, yeah.
0: <laughs> he can't get a boxing license um, in Nevada with that. Mies was also Mies was also a, a giant. He was very tall and, mm. and large. Was, yeah, yeah. Um, but but a heavy smoker. So like maybe yeah, not in the best health. Not yeah, not not one for endurance. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think this is a metaphorical <laughs> cage match though
9: <laughs> yeah, they're not literally talking about who would take the other person out I feel like it's waiting for some say you know, witty architectural historical joke and I just one doesn't come to mind because yeah. I don't Think about those gentlemen that often. As, as the sports guy can tell you, this bout would not be licensed. <laughs> <laughs> I would not pay to go see that fight. That's yeah. what I would say. <laughs> There's maybe
0: something to be said about like boxing and Meese box buildings. I don't know. Uh, I was gonna say uh, put
9: more interesting people in the ring.
4: <laughs>
5: um, this is also making me think that I actually don't really know what Gropius looks like. Like there are so many famous pictures of Mies like standing there with charcoal mm. doing yeah. something, but like you don't see that okay. many pictures. Okay, didn't of you Gropius. go to Harvard? So yeah, that, you're, yeah. yeah he's your he's your guy we, yeah. we, we like looked at buildings not
9: <laughs> I was gonna say this is making me think I don't know what a cage match <laughs> is <laughs> like only metaphorically do I know so it's hard for me to evaluate you know really okay. this kind of competition well, okay we we defer okay we, 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 we will think about all it. right well we, I'll, we will tweet at right? i use
0: my yes uh we're getting, we're getting uh, tweets into the show saying Gropius, but um, I will use my <laughs> host's privilege as, as, a, as an IIT alum to say Mies van der wins. Always on this show forever and ever. Um, We're wow, really like
9: breaking free of the alma mater, aren't you there? Y-
0: well, no, you know, it's like, uh, it's not just the alma mater. It's, you know, we have to have uh, a cloying civic pride in the city to get us through a winter. And um, part of that means... That's
9: um, Walter Gropius. We've been to Walter Gropius' house. <laughs> we have to be <laughs> uh,
0: me fans. Jamie is showing
5: us a picture of Walter Gropius right now yeah. to refresh my memory. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Um are you, here's so, sh- You guys don't know by the way that there is a comic book character also named Wally Gropius.
0: Oh I did not know that. I did yes. not know that either. Yeah. yeah. The more you know. Um <laughs> is it a good uh, it's a, it's was that supposed to be is a good?
4: G. I. Joe commercial? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um
4: <laughs> that, I, I'm getting up.
0: messages about our, our cage match verdict um, <laughs> into my phone from friend friend of the show Marianella, who I, that I cannot read on air. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving moving on before before we start getting death threats, she, feel, <laughs> she feels
9: strongly about me?
0: <laughs> feels strongly about gropius. know uh, oh. yeah, Anyway,
9: like we have to. I don't want to like talk about the Bauhaus on the air. That's boring. Why this not? Is, Bauhaus is interesting. This is mailbag, not architecture history, you right. know, revisit yeah. it, whatever. Well, let's let's get into
0: something that people can get into. Um, <laughs> like air conditioners. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> here's a question. What if you run an air conditioner and a heater at the same time? <laughs>
9: I feel like we're being trolled. People don't take the mailbag seriously. <laughs>
5: <laughs> then you would
0: probably be running a Bitcoin miner.
5: <laughs>
4: yeah,
0: yeah. You you would you would blow out one or both of those systems and spend a ton of money on your electric bill. <laughs> Moving on, or gas bill, both. Um, low frequency humming in the house. What is causing it? For the past two days, there has been a very low frequency humming noise that skips like this. And then it's demonstrated using peri-it's dot, dot, dot dot, <laughs> space, dot, dot, space, dot, dot, space. Dot. This goes on for a long this time. This is definitely Morse code. Yeah. Yeah. So it breaks up and pauses for a second or two. It's driving me crazy. I have really good hearing. My roommate says she cannot hear anything. What is causing this low-frequency humming noise? You're right, though. This dot might be this might be a coded message question. Maybe we should
9: read it all out loud, and then like the aliens will arrive abruptly because you've like triggered their signal. I, Craig, do uh, you
5: how possible? how old is the house? Is it possible it's haunted? And <laughs>
0: does it does not say. No information <laughs> given. Sometimes
9: what? there is a humming in our apartment, and it is because the our neighbors upstairs are staying late and like running the laser cutter or something.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh, I do doubt you, do that. You is you is, <laughs> is there small scale manufacturing happening <laughs> on the floor above you? Question number one. <laughs> uh, okay, what could it be? It could be a fluorescent light bulb in the house somewhere, yeah. right? Some LEDs buzz too, less common than the fluorescents. Mm. Um, it could be the uh, the mechanical system vibrating the ductwork. Hmm. Um, it could
8: it, be wind noise outside vibrating a window or something. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah.
9: our window is always like making a yeah. gentle vibrating noise. Yeah, none so of it, this is from my professional expertise; <laughs> just my personal experience <laughs> right. of yeah. sounds in my apartment but if it, <laughs> that if I have tracked down. <laughs> if
8: it's only two days, like the, the woman. Seems to suggest it's a new thing, right? It yeah. hasn't hasn't been before. So, mm. might the best thing to do might be to say, "Well, has something come into the apartment that's new?" For example, did you just buy a low mm. frequency hummer box? <laughs> 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 do you know, have a
9: roommate who you've recently antagonized right. who's trying to drive you crazy? Right. Or I mean, did you
8: buy like a new microwave or something? Is something yeah, on yeah. a surface that is yeah. moving when it's activated and therefore it's uh, causing this? One well, Go ahead.
5: I I was going to say just. Shut everything off in the house, and then slowly yeah. turn one thing back on at a time Absolutely. until you identify what it's it is. It's the best
0: way to do it. Yeah, shut the whole main breaker off to see if it's something electric in the first place, and then you can switch on the rooms one by one. Yeah,
9: tell them we want an update after they. Yeah, we would like an update after you know. This is why you have we need performed
0: live call calling. Yeah,
9: yeah. <laughs> oh, because we could go room to yeah. room.
0: Oh, that would be that'd be great radio. Yeah, that's great you know, radio. fantastic <laughs> radio. Yeah. Can we Wait, hear the
9: humming it? now? That <laughs> would be silly. <laughs> <cindular>. It also. <laughs> what it about all? now?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also. It also. Seriously, this this could be. Uh, this person might be developing tinnitus if their roommate can't hear it. It might not be a building issue at all, mm. and they might want to consider consulting a doctor.
9: It's a user? error. Yeah.
0: Didn't. Um. <laughs> it's not. It's not an error. <laughs> it's an no. error with the user. <laughs> that's not. That seems very politically incorrect. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Like Enablist. you like
9: yeah. <laughs> user error just is like a shorthand way to say it's not the yeah. thing it's the thing you're doing or or that is happening to yes. you. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Didn't
5: many diplomats in the
0: uh, Cuban oh, yeah. embassy oh, just yeah.
5: have some sort of like sound thing that they thought might yeah. be a weapon? Or <laughs>
0: they were called them, yeah, because they were all like getting their their eardrums were rupturing and well, they, they were like, damaged, yeah, brain damage. Yeah. So does this person have any connection
5: to the State Department? Is it possible that they're being spied on? Is this person the CEO of GE or like some major American
0: company? You never know. I, I would hope that they weren't soliciting <laughs> advice on Yahoo Answers if <laughs> no.
4: that was the case.
0: <laughs> I mean, it could be
8: also that if they're in a residential mixed business area, that there could be a business that has a new sort of – it could be as simple as a neon sign. Neon signs yeah. put out humps and stuff like that. It could be there's a, as so you mentioned, like a laser cutter. So, something could be introduced into their neighborhood. And people have different ranges of hearing. Mm. So if her hearing is truly very sensitive at low frequency, she may be able to be, hear it, and her roommate may not be able to. Mm. And it could be nothing. So you know, the best plan is really to shut everything off. But then if you still can't figure it out, ask yourself what's what's new in your immediate area. You know, and then probably go see a doctor or maybe
5: a mental yeah. professional. <laughs> yeah, or just, yeah. you know, listen to really loud music for a month in your headphones and then hope that you'd are. like knock down your hearing a little. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Moving on to another question. Um. Let's see which one. water drips along the sides of my ceiling. Should I have my roof looked at? I live in a ranch in a very a ranch house in a very snowy area. I notice I have multiple water drips along the sides of the ceiling where it meets the wall. There are no drips in the middle of the ceiling. Should this be something to be concerned about? Yes,
5: water water where it shouldn't be? Should always be a, a concern? Yeah. Um, what do you guys think it is? I is think-
9: that condensation from the interior?
5: I think that it's either condensation because there is poor insulation at that where the roof meets the wall. Or it is an ice dam on the roof if this is happening in the winter where the ice is building up on the edge of the roof Right, uh, where it's not insulated.
0: Either way, some insulation will take care of the problem, presumably.
8: Mm. Well, not not necessarily if it's an ice dam in, in the Midwest. If it's an ice dam, you probably have to go up and possibly install some sort of winter heating system up there because otherwise you're gonna keep getting ice dams and will actually ruin both your roof and your interior. Um, Especially with, that, that actually happened on a building I was working on up in Rogers Park. A friend of mine owned it and it was a flat roof and because the flat roof water was, you know, water would freeze and then it would freeze along the edges The sun would hit it, it would dissipate, then it would refreeze, Mm. and the gutters were just overflowing. You you can see them on buildings, but it is a poor insulation issue at at its root. Heat is escaping up through the sides of the building. It's causing the gutters to overflow, yada, yada, yada. But you can put in electric uh, heaters in there that will stop that fairly inexpensively, and some cases that's really all you can do for certain types of brick construction because there's no room yeah. to
0: put on especially with the flat roofs because with the slope with the slope right. roofs it's more of an issue of the the heat from the building melting melting the snow but then when it hits the open eaves that extend off it it right. gets cold again and then the water hits that ice dam of, uh, and, and backs up underneath the shingle, right. which is, which is, but, but sometimes it can just be condensation. Uh, if there's, if there's not a lot of insulation at the corner between the corner of the wall framing and the roof, cause that can be a hard moment to put some insulation in. Yeah. yeah. Question answered. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Here's a here's a good question um, that has been written very confusingly. So, <laughs> so we can do some copy uh, yeah, editing. Yeah, I I should have copy edited this before, but um, I'll just I I'll tell you what I think it means uh, after I read it. Um, why are all brick houses bricks never aligned all straight? Just offset halfway and back on every layer of bricks. Some houses mm-hmm. have floor tiles that are aligned all tiles side by side. But why do I never see any brick houses where all of the bricks are perfectly aligned like tiles on my floors? Mm-hmm. So I think they're asking, why don't you just stack bricks up one by one mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a tile? Which is a good question.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, sometimes you do. They
4: sometimes should
5: look they at do. like some 1973 yeah. one-story medical <laughs> office building. <laughs> yes <laughs> like the type of building that has aligned <laughs> bricks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what makes it different? Where, like, do you want to take? No, this?
9: go ahead. I mean, like I uh, have aesthetic <laughs> opinions, but like you should just <laughs> explain it.
5: So uh, when you're building a brick wall, you need to tie all of the bricks together, and when you align all of the joints, it's more likely that they will that the wall will crack and fall apart. Uh, whereas when the bricks are offset by half, uh, the the wall is tied together. And they Mm -hmm. actually, if you look at the brick wall, every five courses, there is a a course that is perpendicular Mm -hmm. that is tying multiple layers of brick together. In a solid brick wall, yeah. In a solid brick wall, yes. If you're looking, so the 1970s office buildings were probably veneer brick, which is why it's easier for them to stack up bricks with aligned joints. Yeah,
0: Dude, what's what's your aesthetic response? to this.
9: Oh, yeah. I guess I was just gonna say, like, there are many different types of brick patterns, which, yeah, if you are like in front of a block wall, like go crazy. One of our favorite projects is I, I can call out a building that I yeah, I can call it a building that I like that, I'm not trying to sell it. <laughs> um uh, a building that we really like is the Mohawk House by Urban Lab, where instead of uh turning a block back into tie two wides together um, they kind of like ornamentally turn a brick out um, every other brick, which is, I think, really beautiful and kind of reveals how the patterns that we take for granted um, like can be can be rethought, can be transformed mm. and, and can kind of like produce new, new effects that um, that that aren't solely uh, uh, driven by efficiency.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I always find it's like it with with these veneer walls where the brick is literally just kind of decoration, um, I guess it has some function protecting insulation, whatever, but you know, usually it's concrete block and then like an air gap and a vapor barrier and some other stuff. And then, and then a a layer of brick (laughs) (laughs) that's giving some of the Chicago construction. I see like more, uh, (laughs) More, uh, more credit, more credit than, it's it, than it really, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> really yeah. deserves. But it makes me, it does make me think that like actually stacking the brick uh, vertically is a good sort of expression that the brick is not doing any structural work, mm. right? Like it's it's actually very mesian in, in a way. Um, you know, it's kind of revealing the truth of like this brick is just for show and it's not structural, so we don't have mm. to worry about the joints, um, which I actually find to be quite a nice architectural expression oh
9: interesting you're gonna say you like that it kind of enacts its own lack of right it, its own lack of think, structural uh, performance i think it's mm. ugly
0: but it's honest Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay <laughs>
4: okay i'm with you there i think yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: If we can uh, uh, talk about materials in such ways,
9: mm. now is not the time for a postmodern revival, Kiefer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no. Uh, but speaking, of, we are we are talking about um, some. Oh, you th-
9: did have the yawn people on this show earlier. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm mean, gonna get murdered as <laughs> soon as I walk outside. <laughs>
0: yeah, we did. Ha- we did have a whole post postmodern segment, and yeah. we are we are going to be talking about uh, next show um, next next month. Building is on air. A uh, friend of the show, David Work, will be coming on to uh, talk mm-hmm. about. Um, sort of the the alt right people and all of that. these
9: Twitter architecture.
0: Yeah, and can I
9: be here? I, I mean, I won't say anything. I just want to, you know.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. We, because it's it's this whole weird world where ex- architecture, explicitly above and beyond any other kind of art form, is being kind of weaponized by these people uh, uh, to to advance a kind of w- funny agenda, and and it's all that's not new, of course. No, it's not I mean it's like it's quite but like it's the, like Albert Speer like yeah. 2.0.
9: But yeah. like the bot like the rate at with this uh, the rate at which this stuff is propagating is new, right? I mean like the like I don't Twitter even know, bots yeah. like sending out memes about like you know bath urban planning in England is like yeah. I don't know like there's something that I mean, I I feel like what I was going to say, I literally know that I think about this, is, like, I would like to see... I I also want to see... Can this be, like, a pseudo-reply-all episode? Because, like, I'm less interested in, like, breaking down the ideology of the alt-right Twitter architecture crowd, but I am interested in, like... Who is it, and why? Like, why are they suddenly interested in this, and whom who who do they serve? Right, right,
0: right. Yeah, and and I think drawing those historical connections and trying to figure out what's n- what's different about it yeah. is, is also is an important. F- thing to think about in terms of like how, <laughs> like how do we stop it right how do we stop it or confront it or is that even the, the right thing to be doing right so um um uh,
9: yeah not to say it's not precedented, but like it fe- uh yeah this moment feels different right like the the speed of media and the way that it does or de- does not define kind of new ideologies of nationalism right
8: yeah no? a little bit i mean i think historically it would have taken quite a bit longer for buildings to be built but there was a different sort of media it does feel mm. very uh, instantaneous at this certain time
4: sure
8: that doesn't necessarily mean that the ideas and the stuff aren't a repeat i mean it's we've seen yeah. multiple repeats of fascist architecture all throughout yeah. history so it's yeah and the idea that the built space is used to control sp- people is hardly new and we talk about down on the show all the time, both for good and for bad. Yeah. You know yeah. That's the, that's the of, show. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of, of architecture as control is something that guys, you guys do all the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
9: it, yeah. I, I still am curious because like somehow this seems like architecture weaponized through the image, right? Like it feels like it's almost worth talking about it as like a media practice and not an architectural practice, right? Yeah. Like it's not like the, the alt-right Twitter. I mean, you're going to talk about this. Like, it's not like they are building new Tarragni building, you know, like, they are just circulating images that they have superimposed text on top of, like right. hateful text. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Images and images that are yeah bear no like historical relation to each other. Actually, yeah, it's, yeah. It's all. That it's are like
9: architecture histo- a historical, yeah, yeah.
0: Which, but it does, you know. At uh, at some point, it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? Because it, it creates its own garbage reality, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. twenty eighteen. Yeah, it's not like you can open up your history book and be like, well, that's actually Norman, and this is this <laughs> other thing, and uh, uh huh, huh, I got you now. Like, you know, they're like <laughs> hey, they hey, don't. <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I, I, I thought we'd all be uh, won over by like, facts and logic <laughs> and going back. Back to the books. Yeah. yeah. Lisa
8: Simpson's not right either. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving yeah. along. <laughs> um, does molding add a lot slash any value to your house? And by molding, I assume they mean crown molding or mm. base molding. Moldings, trim. Mm. It
5: adds the monetary value of the wood and labor to put it in and whatever... Someone thinks when they walk in to buy your house, I guess.
8: (laughs) Well, your friend would have, the the woman who's in the show, I think two episodes ago, would have said, no, it adds no value at all. Kate, yeah. Kate, because value is only fixed. Shout out Kate McMansion uh, Hall. Kate McMansion Mm -hmm. Hall. Yeah, Yeah. because she would have said that the value is only fixed by what people are willing to pay for it, which is not the same thing as if you put something into your house and you believe it adds X to the value of your home. That's not true. It's based entirely on the real estate and the location. Mm. Yeah.
9: What? I guess I want to know, like, I kind of understand what chair, chair rail is for. Is there a historic functional reason for crown molding?
0: Yes. Tell yeah. me more. Uh, basically, it's it's to hide hide poor craft- <laughs> well not poor craftsmanship but but like inherent limitations of like mm-hmm. you know when you make a corner, it's always a tricky thing because mm-hmm. that's where any if there's any forces that are acting on the building, that's where you're most likely mm-hmm. to get cracks. That's where mm-hmm. things are most likely to fall apart, that's where um, if things are kind of uneven and things will never be perfectly even, that's where it'll show up the most. So the molding exists to to kind of Cover that up in a mm. way that is very beautiful. Um, so um, beautiful. I, mean, I I actually am a mm. huge nerd for molding, mm. uh, which is a very unpopular opinion as a as someone who has m- like modernist tastes and tendencies. Mm. Oh, I um, love molding. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's some. Oh, that was like, awesome. Se- Seeger um, um, There's really drew beautiful molding, and he was as modernist as they come. Yeah. Adolf Loos liked his molding, um,
5: like the. The moulding or the negative reveal, like they're kind of
9: functioning the th- same. They
5: are yeah, they are functioning the same and they are both kind of uh aesthetic decisions. Right? What
9: building has a negative reveal at where the ceiling meets the wall?
4: Renzo
0: piano buildings. Yeah. Pretty much. Every always. modernist or contemporary Our building that can Institute doesn't have afford a it?
9: gap at the top of the drip board.
0: No, I don't think you're right. I don't think the Art Institute does. But the na- what other
9: Renzo Piano buildings matter? <laughs> <laughs>
0: as, as an Atlanta boy, I'll say the High Museum is very good. It's very good, Renzo Piano. Uh, building.
9: And the High Museum has a reveal? I don't I remember off the top anyone? of my
0: head. I wanted to say yes, but isn't I'm just isn't saying the I... High Museum, a Richard Meyer building. It's both. There's a two wings one's Richard Meyer and one's Renzo Piano.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I cannot think of what the Renzo
5: Piano, geez, <laughs> I'm like really. I couldn't think of what Walter Grobius <laughs> looks like. Now I can't think
4: of <laughs> that. We're getting yeah. fired. Nick, Nick and Emily are waiting outside to, to yeah, they're come in. Yeah, pressing their and noses <laughs> up against the glass. Yeah. Right they're out. like, "We're here." Yeah, but
0: the, yeah, the negative reveal is also a technique, but uh, um, you know, where it just creates a shadow line. So if there's any small cracks or anything, then you just can't see them because they'll be hidden mm-hmm. in the shadow of of the reveal. Mm-hmm. The negative reveal also made out of
5: plastic, like most crown molding today. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
9: <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, I don't know. Depends on how you define value. I guess is the answer.
0: Yes. Yeah. Because I think. <laughs> yeah. It's a. Good, yeah. And I'll, I'll spare everyone the uh, <laughs> diatribe on uh, you know use value and exchange value and socially accepted time of. Well, I can life. tell you, trim is expensive as somebody who's having
8: trim come in. Mm. Flooring and trim are, are expensive.
5: Yeah. But actually, the. I guess what Anne and I see in prices is that actually the like the negative reveal to eliminate the trim is often more expensive than the trim
9: because it has to be done neatly.
0: Yeah, right. it, yeah. like takes more time, it takes yeah. a lot more effort. It, it takes more labor. It, it does. I and I think it's less. Uh, I think it, I think it hold it doesn't hold up quite as well in my opinion, um, uh, especially if you vacuum regularly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you definitely if if you're gonna do it, I think you definitely want to. Sp- spring for the like aluminum profiles Mm -hmm. or like a steel angle would be the
9: dream down there
0: yeah Um, because that that plastic ends up in getting little you end up getting little chips in your drywall corners that's why you have to have oak gotta use hardwood yeah Mm. can't use this plastic yeah that's Mm. right no yeah I'm all about it (laughs) oak trim yeah,
9: That's yeah. why your trim's so expensive. <laughs> 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 you sourced hardwood trim, you know, yeah. straight from the virgin forest. <laughs> I, I
8: believe it's probably like 6600 bucks in trim. Oh, oh wow. I think, yeah. That's uh, not insubstantial. Oh, no. so we
9: do have a molding fan among us.
8: Yeah. Well, I mean, the house that is being restored had all
0: that mm. original red oak and, yeah. and cherry mm. trim, and they're going to put it back. Yeah, cool. It's the best part about Chicago buildings is yeah. old Chicago buildings. is the beautiful hardwood trim. Yeah. Um,
8: I'd actually like to get your opinion on that because our opinion is <clears throat> the building, as you guys know, because for people, regular listeners may know that, <laughs> that Ann and Craig designed the porch of this restored, fire, fire-ravaged fire building, but the, inter- the interior is now rather modernist. It looks kind of modernist at the moment, but we're having the original trim put back mm. the way it is, and the original trim was just natural wood. It wasn't... Mm paint mm. it or stain or anything like that and i can't see the point of if you're gonna have oak to paint it because that seems kind of ridiculous yeah mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a debate going on uh not between me and my wife but between me and the contractor over why you would do this why wouldn't you just keep it with a modernist feel and i think that's an interesting aesthetic question uh-huh.
9: wait say the question say the options again
8: so you could you could put trim in and paint it which i think yeah. is a waste of time personally yeah. that's an yeah. aesthetic decision but like you know it, it would it's going to change it to being a more antique looking building having yeah. the old school natural wood in it.
4: Hmm.
9: Your apartment has natural wood trim yeah, or it's, it's been like stained. maybe it has a stain yeah, yeah it has it's a, been
0: stained what? it hasn't been painted um yeah, I mean stained and uh,
8: yeah. you know, i guess stained yeah. and so
9: but our yeah. apartment has a one by nailed to the bottom of the wall but
0: um... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think Adolf Loos has a thing about um, when when you're allowed to paint and, and sort of rules for like covering other materials and um, I forget exactly what it is but like basically it has to be sort of like contrasting and different enough so as not to be confused mm-hmm. with the base material mm-hmm. so Adolf Loos would say you could paint uh, trim as long as you weren't painting it like brown or yellow or like a wood color. Can I like let paint... l- yeah. yeah, you'd have to be like like pink or red or like something really wildly different. Yeah, uh, um...
9: but Adolf Loos also thinks we should like evaluate people by the number of tattoos they have.
0: What <laughs> is that a l- Lucian thing about tattoos? I... Yes,
9: or- ornament and crime. A famous. Talk, wait. I, oh, oh. Am no, I going into um, um, uh, I sure inappropriate if, territory here? No, I just wasn't. <laughs> You're all giving me a weird look. <laughs> no,
0: I wasn't sure if that was a joke about ornament and crime or if Adolf Lowe's had literally said something about people having tattoos.
9: He literally says in Ornament and Crime that if you have tattoos, you are a criminal. And that is why buildings should not have decor. Awesome. As as Jamie and I roll up our sleeves here. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess I don't remember that part of
9: Ornament Crime. (laughs) I, too, actually kind of forgot about the terrifying details of Ornament Crime until I reread it with my students. And they're like, Anne, like, you issued this without any trigger warnings. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I absolutely should have, like, read more closely before I reissued this to you. Oh, that's yep.
0: very interesting. Maybe we can do a buildings on air close reading of of. of oh this. no,
9: it will just like make us all want to you know murder suicide the whole room. So I don't think we should. <laughs> 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 it's true. It's true.
0: Yeah. Um, so I I think that trim is good, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, and that you shouldn't paint it, um, and and that uh, the kind of modern look of going sans trim or doing like a little. Um, um you know tiny piece of wood on on the edge is um uh, a, a very good approach in some buildings but if you if you have an older Chicago two or three flat then and an opportunity to uh, sort of use the old trim then I would go for it hmm. especially because I think that old the old hefty trim in those older buildings I mean the building's settled by now but um, those older buildings are more prone to bigger cracks in the plaster and things like that. There's a reason why you want some sort of hefty trim.
9: I'm just so excited that you're on the trim part of the house.
0: The trim train. (laughs)
9: That we're talking about trim. We're talking about trim. I'm so happy we're talking about trim.
5: I just, I would say don't stain the trim. Like you could paint it or you could seal it, but don't stain it and then seal it. Cause like, why give the wood a color that isn't
9: the stain trim in your in Kiefer's apartment is beautiful though. It's like a dark wood color. Yeah, yeah I yeah. don't.
8: I think it would be just more of a neutral sealer
0: is you know yeah. a wood sealer yeah, yeah, is kind of yeah. what yeah. I'm thinking. I don't. Yeah. I don't think it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also have a personal revulsion against like yellow oak and the yellowness of uh, this is red. This wood. is red oak. Red oak. Okay. Mm. Red cool. Oak. All right. <laughs> good. good, Good. Good. A good Stalinist oak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer my 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 red oak to be of the Trotskyist variety. But that's just Sorry. me. <laughs> they were out of that at the store. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't get the yeah. white Russian oak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they, they, they cut the red oak with the, the Trotskyist red oak with an ice pick. It was a whole thing. It was really it was, messy, yeah. Yeah. so ooh, Okay, moving on. Um, Argentina. <laughs>
5: Uh, next question wait before we go on I think everyone on the radio should know that as we ask these questions Kiefer is putting a small X next to them
0: like we have really accomplished something <laughs> like checking it off the list yeah we have well I don't want to ask the same question twice um, I have a crazy neighbor who turns on his super bright spotlight whenever he sees me in the kitchen doesn't matter if it's morning afternoon or night how do I get back at him
4: <laughs> Oh, oh.
0: <laughs> this is a great
5: design project what, the spotlight is shining into their kitchen? Is presumably. That what we are presumably.
9: A large mirror behind your window. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of
8: course, that, that kind of blocks your use of the window. Right. Sure. Yeah. Okay. You could use one-way glass,
0: I guess, right? Yeah. Mm. I Which is so. mirrored. mm Yeah, and then you would still preserve your outside view.
9: A performative act, time to begin, exactly as the spotlight turns on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that probably, I think this person is paranoid, uh, I have to say. I think that they believe that the neighbor is turning on the super light spotlight to annoy them as they step into the kitchen, but I bet you it's just a motion-sensing light and the houses are close enough together Mm. to where when they are walking by the window in their kitchen the motion-sensing security light is turning on. Mm. So that's my speculation (laughs) Mm -hmm. on what's going on. Not that the neighbor is, like, (laughs) waiting there with a (laughs) switch. (laughs)
9: Every time you go to get a glass of water, it's, like, turning it on. Yeah,
0: because I think if that's the case and you want to get them back, like, you should file, I don't know, maybe a a civil suit or something. Or or, (laughs) Or maybe just knock on their door
5: uh, and say, why are you doing this?
0: (laughs) Yeah.
8: Yeah, maybe turn off the mo- the motion detector. Turn turn off yeah, the yeah, motion yeah. detector. Re-angle well, those lights. Or just so, tape it up. Yeah. The
5: person should go outside and see if there is indeed a motion detector on the light. That would yeah. be the first
0: yeah. the first step. They yeah. look like just a little box or you can you can tell what they look right. like hanging off of the security security light. Yeah. All right. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> um Let's see. Are we burning through all your questions too quickly? No, 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 no. I've got so many questions. We can always talk about air conditioning. Or again. the insulation yeah, we lobby. Can. Um. Or our
9: favorite people who we've interacted with the, at the DOB recently. Yeah,
5: which is, yeah. Or we mean, Chicago's adoption of the uh, National Electrical Code. Let's oh my God. Oh, buy, no? uh, Craig, buy a copy of it.
9: Craig and Kiefer have been dying to talk about this problem. So l- somebody <laughs> yeah, should just ask please. about it. Craig,
0: c- Craig, tell us about that. <laughs> I know you're dying to talk about <laughs> it.
9: Get one platform to complain about this (laughs) other than over the bar at the bar
0: so uh chicago is one of the
5: few cities in the world that's still not in the world that was weird uh one of the few (laughs) cities in the u.s that still has uh its own building code and has not adopted a model code like Mm -hmm. the international building code but this year uh chicago adopted the national electric code to replace the electrical portion of the building code Um, And I think this is great because it actually just, like, it kind of makes things easier. There's, like, only one code you have to learn, even if you're working in multiple jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, It's, like, a greater, um, uh, there's kind of more people looking and thinking about the code than just, like, kind of local Chicagoans. Um, But what I find super irritating about it is that, like, the code used to be available on the city of Chicago website that you could just go and read it. In like, it was on, like, a horrible 1992 website, but it was, like, easy, readable, searchable. And the new code, um, if you read the free version of it, you can only, um, it is like on this horrible website <laughs> where the you can only see like one third of the page at a time. You yeah. can't search it. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that that is their way of like trying to get you to buy yeah. buy
0: the code book. I think you're right. I, we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, this, and it's something that I feel very strongly about. Um, is standards by reference, uh, and, mm-hmm. and because all of these codes, these model codes, um, are developed by uh, not not-for-profit companies. I mean, they're not for profits, but at the end of the day, they they're, they're still non-public, non-governmental entities. And they basically develop these standards, which gets referenced into the law, um, but they're behind a copyright. So the way that these companies make money is by selling you access to the standards. So it's it's literally a situation where to know the law, to have access to the law, you have to pay these these private not-for-profit companies money to see what the law is, which is like a, a pretty – like uh, like it's, it strikes me as deep deeply undemocratic yeah. and wrong
8: my yeah. wife actually does that for a living works with international standards and it is her enormous pet peeve she cannot stand hmm. the basically her, her thing is you can just get wildly rich yeah if you invent a standard for for example a computer dongle that mm. everybody has to follow because not only keep, you have to license it but you can't find anything else yeah. about it unless you pay for it mm. yeah. um and it's in her, she would use many more swear words than I'm permitted <laughs> yeah. to use in this situation. But you're exactly right, Kiefer. It, it's a it's enormous problem that's been caused by yeah. standardization, homogenization. There's obviously good parts of it. You know, as Craig points out, it's great to have a uniform electrical code so right. that everybody knows what it is, opposed to the Chicago Building Code, which is endlessly frustrating <laughs> yeah. to everybody that works with it. Yeah. But the other hand is, uh, we've created these huge polyglot
0: companies that can just yeah suck money off and even and it's like I don't care that they're not for profits in 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 this regard because they're not they don't like th- they just need to be nationalized like that's the solution <laughs> is to like nationalize them and put them in the public domain if we as a society think that having these standards are is, a, is an important or valuable thing then like why, why why shouldn't that be a kind of genuinely public process mm. well or they should just like make the code uh Publicly available in
5: a in an easy to read, well designed yeah, format, yeah. and someone like me is going to still pay them a hundred bucks right. for the paper book because I want uh, the reference on my desk. Yeah, but.
0: or uh, or you can even think about it as like, and, and this seems like it would actually be the genuinely neoliberal thing to do, which is to sell advertising, right? <laughs> like when you go look at it on the website, which which also I I I, I, I as as much as. That notion pain, pains me of having to, you know, watch, a f- you know, ten second like advertisement for toothpaste or whatever before I go look mm. at the wall. Yeah. Um, I I I'd, I'd prefer that to not being able to see it in the first place but or uh, pay a hundred bucks. Well, I what?
9: don't think you want to see like an ad for a conduit manufacturer before you get to
0: no. the conduit section. But, that's where we get into like it, but, territory.
9: But, but, but are you guys going to say something about the code pirate?
0: Yeah, I, I'm getting there. I'm oh, getting there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. No, like, but but yeah. I think you're totally right. Because but the, but the point is, is that those standards are already developed by those people. That's like the big insulation <laughs> buildings on air joke. I felt big yeah. insulation coming from yeah. a mile away. Yeah, but but no, it's true, and it's true. and it's not even just in the building industry, right? Like the banking industry has a lot of these standards mm. by reference too, mm. that are the like kind of at the heart of their regulatory structure. But the people developing those regulatory standards are the bankers themselves. It's ridiculous. Mm. and you know so so anyway uh, but yes the code pirate uh, you know we've had this the buildings on air award the airy for oh, that yes. unnamed unnamed of, uh, official or, or or person from the water department. Yeah. yeah. So last 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 a couple months ago was the person from the water department. Um, I th- I think this month's airy should go to Carl Mahmood, the uh, activist who's single handedly putting out these copywritten codes uh, in the public domain and inviting a lawsuit um, um, to try to prove that the law is something that shouldn't be copywritten. I know he's got some cases going through and he's being represented by the uh, electronic frontiers foundation oh, so he, he's the airy recipient of this month and we gotta go yeah we gotta go it's that time thanks and thanks craig thank you the listener thank you. thanks for having us
1: this has been buildings on air on lumpen radio buildings on air is a production of lumpen radio Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGSonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.